morning, join me um, as I read from Genesis 12, starting in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time that the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who'd appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake." When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. God, we praise you so much um, for giving us your word uh, that has the ability to transform our hearts um, and make us new. And so I just pray this morning that you would give us the ears to hear and the hearts to receive what you have for us. And I pray that Josh's words this morning um, would build us up and, and share with us what we need to hear from you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Matt. How's it going, guys? Good to see you. Um, If you're not at Genesis 12 yet, please get there. It'd be awesome to have you there with me. A little clarification. There's a typo about my affinity group. So it's not 4.45 p.m. on Wednesdays. It's 7 a.m. on Wednesdays. So me and the one other person who likes mornings uh, will gather together at King's Coffee Culture and read a book. Okay? So it'll be great. So whoever you are, the one person who gets up early with me, uh, I'll see you there. Okay? It'll be awesome. Um, but we're in Genesis 12 this morning um, as we continue on our summer series. Uh, last week, guys, we saw in the first three verses of Genesis that God um, goes in uh, to a land where no one knows him, fears him, follows him, and he, he just handpicks Abram out of it. And he goes, Abram, I, give up, I want you to give up everything, your security, your survival, your future, everything, and just follow me and trust me and, and do that by faith. And so then by following God by faith, God says, I will bless you 
but I'm going to bless you for a purpose, that you would be a blessing to other people. And if you were here last week, we talked about that, how we too, like Abram, God blesses us, not so that we're just be like, I'm awesome, I'm an awesome person, I got all this stuff, it's so that you'd be a blessing to other people, that God has a purpose in blessing us. And this morning, guys, our passage shows what happens next to Abram. And we see in these three short stories, there's actually one more story uh, in chapter 13 that we're gonna look at. These three stories, um, they're just not all that exciting, just to be honest, okay? Uh, If you're reading through Genesis and you get to this section, you're like kind of a little anxious to get on to the epic stuff, you know? Uh, But these stories are in our Bibles for a reason. They have something really important to say to us. And uh, in these stories of Abram here following God, we really see uh, Abraham uh, fluctuating between faith and fear. He just fluctuates between faith and fear. He's got this call of God on his life, these promises to hold on to, and yet through his life, he just fluctuates with faith and fear. And so that's the question that's just been going through my mind all week that I wanted to ask you guys this morning as we dive into this, and that's this. Uh, As you walked into here this morning, or as you just consider your week or the season of life you're in, uh, would you say uh, that you're driven by faith, or would you say you're driven by fear? Are you a person, as you just assess your life right now, you're like, oh, I'm driven by faith? Or would you say, I'm driven by fear? I'm driven by fear. I propose to you this morning uh, that you're either functioning in one of the other spaces of that question. You're, you're either in one of the other places. And I think if you're driven by fear, you'll find that you, in your life, what you're doing most often is you are avoiding things or you're rerouting all the time because you're afraid, right? But if you're exercising fear, a lot of times you're going to press in. You're going to keep going, even if what it is that you're facing seems really challenging or difficult or, or fearful. Um, I was thinking about this. When it comes to the, the realm of heights, okay, I'm always driven by fear, okay? I, like many of you, I hope, or I'm certain, okay? Um, I always avoid them, okay? I reroute, essentially. I'm driven by fear when it comes to uh, the idea of heights. And, and even growing up uh, in Helena, Montana, we were surrounded by all these lakes. And I was just thinking back this week even how um, me and my friends, we'd often go to these lakes during the summer and we would cliff jump. At least they would cliff jump. I would watch them cliff jump. There was one time I cliff jumped. It was only a 20-foot cliff, not even that cool. And I remember vividly to this day standing there for nearly an hour just like being one of those idiots, you know, and you're like, come on, man, you're going to be fine, you know. And, and finally I jumped, and that's the only cliff I had ever jumped and ever will jump again. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm driven by fear when it comes to that area of my life. And just recently, I've got into watching um, that incredible show, The Amazing Race, okay? I like that show. And um, I've been telling my wife, I'm like, I want to go on this, this show. I want to go on the race. Because I think it would give me the ability to, to have faith in those moments where they have to jump off a building or go skydiving or something, because I am not going to cry on national television, right? I am going to, to press in, right? I'm going to have faith when it comes to that area, right? So even when it comes to the area of heights, we function with fear of faith. What is it about life, though? How are you functioning? How are you functioning? Maybe this morning you're like, I'm just really energized, or maybe I'm burnt out, and you're like, I have no idea. But you're still one or the other. And, and maybe it's hard to tell, and I think our stories this morning help us tell. They help us figure it out. 
And I think in this story, we clearly see, this is the thing I want you to see, it's gonna be on the screen. We see this. Guys, that faith is active in our present. It'll be active in your present when, it's, when your life is grounded in the past and in the promises that God gives you in the future. That's when faith will be active. But simultaneously, fear is active in our present when we're just grounded in the present circumstances of our lives. This is the key to faith. This is the key of pressing in. And so in these three short stories, um, it helps us identify whether or not we're driven by faith or fear, and you'll see this in your paper branch notes. We see that this first story shows us that faith worships what no one else is. We see that faith is tested and strengthened in our hardship. And we see that faith lifts our eyes to see what will be, not what is. So the first story of Abram, we see here that faith worships when no one else is, okay? So we see here, and starting in verse four, Matt read this for us, Abraham, he obeyed God's call. He obeyed his call, he followed God, he opened his hands to everything that he knew, and he moved into an unknown future, and all he had to go off of was the voice of God. That's all he had as a security blanket. And then we get to verse six, and this is a really important verse. There's a lot of tension here that we often miss because the way it's worded, if you were an Israelite reading this story and you get to verse six, it would have caused you to go like, whoa. Like you would have really freaked out a little bit. Because it says, Abram came to Shechem, right? Which is uh, this place in Canaan. And it says he came uh, to the oak, which is literally the word terebinth, uh, to the oak of Moreh, which Moreh in Hebrew means teacher. So essentially, he comes to this teaching tree, uh, uh, this terebinth tree in Shechem, okay? And this place that he comes to is not just a teaching type of place, it's a shrine. It's a shrine where people would, would give sacrifices and do all these things for the sake of idol worship, okay? These are places where idols are worshiped, and this is also a place where oracles would be given by Canaanite priests Um, to the people, okay? So he, Abraham, finds himself in the center, at at the very heart of this foreign territory. And so he just shows up here, and you're kind of meant to feel the tension a little bit. And then this tension's really drawn out because the next phrase in verse six says, now the Canaanites were at that time dwelling in the land. He's not alone. It's not vacant. It's active, okay? But Abram's there. And then look what happens next. The tension rises because God says to Abram, remember that land uh, that I promised that I would give to you? Uh, this is it. This is the land. Uh, but, but you're not going to see it. I'm actually going to give it to your offspring. And so what does Abraham do? Does he panic? Go, are you kidding me? Look what people are doing here. This is it? What do you mean I'm not going to see it? No, what does he do? Look in verse 7. He builds an altar. He builds an altar, verse seven. Where does he build the altar? Verse seven tells you, right by the shrine. He just like throws down in this culture. He builds it right next to where this other idol is built. He's building an altar in someone else's land right next to their place of idol worship. Like we we really don't have a good equivalent of this in our culture. Even though all of us today, we all worship something, I firmly believe that. You're worshiping something as you walked into this room this morning, but we don't really have a cultural equivalent. I actually thought about this for a while. The best I could think of that would be a shrine in Corvallis would be Reeser Football Stadium, 
okay? That's like the, the most iconic shrine we might say we have here, okay? So in a sense, this would be like Abraham on game day going to Reese Football Stadium and going to the center of field and just throwing down a cross and starting to praise God. This is literally like what he's doing. It has that sort of effect on the person who's originally reading this passage. See, altars were like a really big deal, guys, because not only is Abraham worshiping, to build an altar in a society like this meant that Abraham was actually introducing a new God to a new land. He was saying there is, there's a new God in town, and he's not a dead God, he's a living God. He's here to display this God to these people. He doesn't stop there, though, because he moves on from that place that's in between Bethel and Ai, and he eventually resurrects his tent, which he goes camping, essentially. He's saying, I'm going to live here temporarily. And then he does what? He builds another altar. He keeps doing this. He keeps moving into places, and he's worshiping God in places where no one else is. He's just worshiping God, and no one else is. He's saying, God is saying, I'm giving you this land. It's your offspring. It's mine, Abram. I'm going to give it to you. If it's mine, I'm the one who can give it. All right, consider it done. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, you actually never see this promise, but it's true. I will give it to you. So the Lord, guys, he, he promised. We saw this last week that he was going to make Abraham's name great. But what does that look like? It looks like Abraham going into places and praising the great name of God. He uses this idea that he would make his name great to go in and make God's name great in these places. Abraham worships. He introduces the living God to a community of people who worship a dead God. He, worship, he, he introduces a speaking God to a group of people who worship mute gods. This is what Abraham's doing here. In the same way, guys, faith, true faith, it worships God when no one else is. This is how you know that you're exercising faith and not fear. This is one of the ways. It doesn't come and go with the culture. It doesn't wait for a community of people to, to take the lead. And then you say, I'll jump in now. It doesn't wait for someone else to set the example. True faith, guys, it recognizes the power and the beauty and the truth of God, and it sees the false gods of the culture, and it says, those gods aren't even gods. I'll tell you who God is. It boldly worships. It declares God as worthy, as the owner of all things. Guys, faith follows God when no one else is. Um, it's uh, summer. That means it's wedding season, right? And that means one thing, not love, okay, not what you're thinking, not good food, it means dancing, right? It means dancing, summer is meant for dancing because of weddings, okay? Uh, in my early 20s, I used to boogie, okay? I'd go to weddings, I'd get down, you'd think I grew up in the 70s, I didn't, but nonetheless, I was that guy in that day where I would just get out there and kind of go crazy. People would kind of be afraid a little bit when I danced. I don't really dance as much anymore. I dance at home. Uh, so if you want to know what my dance moves are like, you can just look at my kids dance. You've seen how I've trained them, okay? Um, I don't do much anymore, but we all know what dancing is like at weddings. It's a little awkward, isn't it? Because the DJ gets out there and he's like, all right, everybody move to the dance floor. And there's like a grandma out there and a couple toddlers. And you're just like, I don't know, you know? And you're just like, who's going to take the plunge? Like, who's going to really go out there, right? And there's this awkwardness. I was kind of that guy originally that would just get out on the dance floor. I was like, someone will follow. If not, I'll have fun, okay? But now I'm that guy. I'm like, I ain't going. I'm not getting on the dance floor. 
And even when everybody else gets on the dance floor, I'm the guy still socializing, and they're like, come on, Josh, get out there. And uh, I just, I'd rather sit on the sidelines, essentially. Right? But we all feel it at weddings. There's an enormous amount of pressure to see who's going to be the first to go. But secondly, there's this enormous amount of pressure when everyone gets out there to actually get out on the dance floor with everybody else, right? Culturally, this is what this is like. See, essentially, Abraham is in a culture where no one is dancing, right? But God calls him onto the dance floor. Abraham sees that his, this is God's land. It's God's dance floor. And he is worthy of all praise from every person. And so what does Abraham do? He dances. It's like, I'll get out there. You see, true faith in God, guys, it doesn't wait for someone else to take the lead in exercising faith in God. True faith doesn't wait for someone else to lead before they'll follow. True faith doesn't wait to be hospitable before other people are hospitable. It doesn't wait to profess Jesus until it sees other people professing Jesus, right? Faith looks around their city and realizes that this city is Jesus' city. And faith steps out to praise him. It doesn't wait for the crowd to jump on the dance floor. It dances, hoping that other people will join in the dance. Faith worships when no one else is. And let me tell you, you can know that you're driven by faith this morning if you find yourself worshiping in places where no one else is. So Abraham's doing well, isn't he? He's, he's worshiping God when no one else is, but his faith is about to be remarkably tested. And that's the second thing we see. We see faith is tested and strengthened in trial, starting in verse 10. This other story in this little story uh, begins with, there was a famine in the land. And then it repeats itself saying there was a severe famine in the land, meaning it was really bad. Okay? God didn't tell Abram to leave this land that he had given to him as a promise, but nonetheless, there's this famine in the land, and so Abram leaves. He goes down to Egypt. He abandons God's vision for his life. And he goes down because Egypt is, has the Nile. It's, it's more appealing. And so this here is this immediate test of faith for Abram. He's promised land, and the land that he's promised is not really providing all that well for him. Okay? And so he just jets off. He jets off for better land. And so Abram's vision and faith, they're challenged and tested here. Here, guys, just think of it. At the first touch of hunger in his life. He's bolting. Fear sets in. He loses the vision, and instead of faith, Abraham exercises fear. But maybe, more than food, Abraham isn't afraid of just merely that. He's actually afraid he's going to lose his life, which would mean no offspring or land, and so this vision that God has given him for his life he, he all of a sudden just looks at what he can see, and what he can see overpowers his vision for what God has promised to him. And so what does he do? He goes into Egypt with his wife Sarai, and he says, hey, uh, Sarai, just tell Pharaoh and everybody that you're my sister, because uh, they're going to kill me to have you because you're so beautiful. And so in these verses here, we learn very clearly that Abraham married up, okay? He married up here. And uh, we simultaneously learn that he's very aware that he married up, okay? So much so that he's like, look at me, look at you. They're going to they're gonna want you, okay? They're going to kill me. I mean, I'm just Abram, okay? And so he, he, he knows this so much so that he thinks his life is at stake. This logic seems really weird to us, very weird to us. But in this culture, 
in a land like this, Pharaoh could just go, hey, she's pretty. Um, I'd like her, which is terrible. And uh, he would just kill the husband. That's what they would do. And so Abram's smart because he knows in these cultures, or at least we think he's smart, he goes, if, it's, if I'm merely her brother, the, the Pharaoh would just negotiate with the brother and then take the sister. But nonetheless, fear is setting in. He thinks, if I don't do this, uh, I got to figure this out because if I don't do this, then my life is, is at stake. And so I don't know about you. I mean, I'm sure you resonate with Abram. Maybe not. I mean, maybe in the sense of marrying up. I don't know. But, um, but definitely in the sense of just preservation of life. I mean, I know I do. And I think it's in moments like this that we are reminded that Abraham is human, just like we are. But guys, Abraham fails. He freaks out. He's being driven by fear and not faith because he's so focused on what he sees versus what he can't see. And he fails. He fails. But in failing, guys, God is so gracious to him. He's so gracious to him. God doesn't say, are you kidding me, Abram? After all I've already done for you, I'm going to go find somebody else. You don't see God doing that. You don't see God like uh, getting upset or smiting him or just cutting him off or anything like that. God actually, through this whole story, you see God graciously restores Abram. God is faithful to his promises despite Abram's failings. I mean, yeah, it's going to take plagues to restore Sarai. You see that in verse 17. He's going to have to be deported in verse 20. And that's, gonna, that's what it's going to take to get Abram back to Canaan. But God is going to use difficult circumstances to get Abram and Sarah back on the path that he has for them but he's going to do it. I think in our lives too, guys, there's many times where we at one point, we believed and we had faith in God and his promises and his ability and his provision for our lives, but we all of a sudden, we like might encounter something, something hard, something that's painful, something scary, something that feels like, um, yeah, this is not what I thought this was going to be. You know, when I, when I went to follow Jesus, I didn't know I was signing up for stuff like this. I thought I was protecting myself from things like this happening in my life. This doesn't really um, add up. Uh, so I'm going to pull out. I'm going to go figure this out on my own. Uh, so we might encounter things like sickness. We might encounter, you know, the loss of a job or maybe someone we just really love or we encounter maybe just a really difficult marriage, and we thought if you're a Christian, marriage is just like easy, you know? Or we get really frustrated in our parenting, or we're just so confused, we don't know how to do it, our kids aren't perfect, or they're wandering off and they're living lives and we're like, what are you doing? You're screwing it up. God, why would you let this happen? Or we encounter the fact that we just didn't get the job we thought we were going to get, and now we think, man, I've worked my whole life in this degree to get this career. I don't even know if I can live in this field anymore. Now what am I supposed to do? Do I just wash all this money down the drain? We encounter pain of some kind. Maybe it's like a numbness, seasons of um, anxiety, or just terrible depression might set in, and we feel like, God, uh, I look at my circumstances, and I feel like you've left me. I feel like you've abandoned me. Do you remember how I was like worshiping when no one else was? That was, that was me, remember that? No one else was doing that? Um, I left everything to follow you. 
and now this comes, uh, where are you? There's famine in my life. I feel like my life's at stake here. See, what our eyes see in these moments, those things get really, really big, and God gets really, really small. That's what's happening. We, we had something that's in the foreground and in, in the background, and God's in the foreground. And whatever was in the background kind of comes to the foreground, and God begins to move to the background. Or we fear the loss of something else, and the fear of God just begins to shrink in our lives. We fear men, not God. We encounter something that challenges our faith, and for Abram, it was famine, right? It was fear of death, but his circumstances and our circumstances where we're driven by fear and not faith, just like Abraham, what's happening to us is God is shrinking, and things are getting really big. And the problem is we have a perception issue. That's what we have. God and his promises at one point seemed so great and so tangible and so reliable, but now my circumstance has changed and now God doesn't seem to be so great anymore. The shine is kind of worn off, but he is. We just kind of have a perception problem. Um, I don't know if this is you or not, but maybe this is you. Have you ever like bought a shirt before? And you loved it, okay? And uh, over time, that you just kind of got bored with it, and you're like, I don't even think I like this shirt anymore. So you give it away to a friend. Have you ever done this? And then you're just like, yeah, take it. I don't even like it. And then you see them a week, ago, week later, like, wearing it, and you're like, oh, I actually like that shirt. <laughs> Looks pretty good on them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I like the only, I don't think I'm the only one, hopefully. If not, I'm really weird, okay? <laughs> but nonetheless, you thought something was so great, you're like, ah, I lost interest, and I just give it away. And then later you realize, that was a great shirt. Why did I do that? Okay? Happens to me all the time. <laughs> Nonetheless, this is a perception issue, correct? Nothing changed. The shirt was the same. It's a perception issue. That's what Abraham has. He has a perception problem. The shirt is old. The shine is worn off. See, but God doesn't abandon Abram, though, does he? Even though Abram's faith crumbles, Abraham doesn't crumble. God is gracious to Abram and restores him. I mean, do you see the grace of God here in this story? That even through failure and testing, Abram's faith is strengthened. That's what we're about to see. But let me ask you before we get to that story, why does God do this for Abraham? Why does he do this? Why is he gracious toward him? I mean, he just failed God. God got small, what he feared got big, he abandoned God, but God was gracious and preserved him. Why? Because God has made a promise to Abram, and he promised to preserve Sarah, and he promised them land, and he promised to preserve Abram, and he promised them blessing, and God, uh, uh, sorry, Abram abandoned clinging to those promises the first moment it felt like those things were in jeopardy. But God is faithful to Abram. Why? Because God is faithful to himself. He's faithful to himself. He says, my name is at stake here, and I made the promise, I'm going to see it through. 
And so it's sheerly by grace that Abraham is restored, that through failure, his faith is actually strengthened. And we see that next. We've seen him, Abram, exhibit faith when he grounds himself in the words of God, and we've seen him exhibit fear when he's grounded himself in his circumstances, but finally, we see his faith grow from this experience of fear because we see that Abram lifts his eyes to what will be, not what is, which is the exact opposite of this story. We're going to be looking now in chapter 13 where we see this happening. They, they return from Egypt here, and Abram's now, he's rich. Egypt has made him rich, and we see this in verse 2, that this is happening. God is still blessing Abram despite his fear and failures, and now, leaving Egypt, where does he head? Where does Abram go? He goes right back to the place where God directed him. He goes back to the altar. That's where he goes. He went back to what he knew. He goes back to the place where he worshipped when no one else was. And what does he do when he gets there? What does it say? calls upon the name of the Lord. That doesn't mean he goes, uh, God? That doesn't mean what he says. It means he's worshiping. He's just worshiping. What's changed in Abram's life? He's experienced God's grace, hasn't he? He just horribly failed, and yet he's back, and nothing has changed. He's experienced the grace of God, and now he's worshiping, He didn't trust God, he failed, and God still blessed him and restored him and received him. And now Abram has experienced God's grace, so when he gets back, he worships. And he and Lot, they continue to flourish, which Lot is his nephew, and they flourish to the point where there's not even enough space in this land to provide for the enormity of their wealth, the enormity of their resources. And so they have to part ways. So Abram goes to Lot, our story tells us, and he says, hey, we gotta part ways. But Abram has so much faith now, he goes, you pick. He just has so much confidence that God is going to place him where he needs to be. It's actually that faith has kind of made him generous, if you notice this. He goes, just tell me what land you want. He has the confidence, and then what happens next? Let's read with me in verse 10. I'm going to read 10 through 18. It says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one can count the dust of the earth, which I don't think anybody can, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And what does he do? He introduces God to the land again. He builds an altar. So we see this important phrase here in verse 10. It's like the important phrase of this whole story that I just read. What does Lot do when he's told to choose? 
It says what? Lot, Lot lifted up his eyes. Lot lifted up his eyes. He lifted him up, and what did he see? He saw the, the, the lushness, the awesomeness of the Jordan Valley. This valley, though, was the place of Sodom. It's a pretty corrupt place. People don't love God in the valley, okay? The valley doesn't fear God. The valley doesn't love God. It looks awesome, though, and this is Lot's choice. It's like, that looks great to my eyes. That's what I want. Jordan looked better. It sounded better. Logically, it was better. And naturally, that's what Lot chooses. He functioned, guys, by his belly. He was functioning by what he could see naturally. In the same way, Lot didn't see or understand the worth of the land that he was in that God had promised to them. You didn't think Lot would know this? I mean, Lot is Abram's nephew. He's been with him for years, right? He didn't see the worth of the land that God had promised to Abram, right? He, He was looking at the present, It was instant gratification, if you think of it that way, versus delayed gratification. Just think of it this way, okay? Let's just imagine that you walked up into our Twigs ministry with the children this morning, okay? You got past security, right? I mean, not like illegally, but you went through, you know? And you went up and you were interacting with uh, a kid, and you said, hey, um, I got a proposal for you. I have a pack of bubble yum, like a full pack, pink lemonade kind right? The best kind. I will give this pack of gum to you now, or you can wait 10 years, and I will give you my 2018 Lexus, because you're rich, okay? And uh, you propose this to this kid, right? You even say, hey, when you get your driver's license, it'll be yours, free of charge. I won't even drive it. I'll just maintain it. I'll have low mileage. It'll be, you know, it'll be mint condition. It'll be awesome, okay? You can have your choice. What's the kid going to say? Pink lemonade, right? Right? What are you going to say? Pink lemonade, probably. Yeah? It's pink lemonade. Okay? All right, we get this. I mean, we're an instant gratification culture. See, the idea of waiting for something that's better is is really difficult uh, for most of us. This is the temptation of Lot, right? To go with what your eyes see and what your belly is saying or to go with the promise and trustworthiness of God to go for instant gratification or to go for the long play of delayed gratification. Guys, in the same way, Jesus was tempted once in this same exact way. I mean, the stories are just so paralleled. Before he begins his ministry, he's led out into a wilderness. He doesn't eat for like 40 days. He's famished, right? He's experiencing famine. And what happens? Satan leads him up to a high place and he says, look out, see, everything that you can see, all the kings on the earth, I will give them to you. If only you will bow the knee to me. If only you bow the knee to me. He was tempted with his eyes, with instant gratification, and yet Jesus didn't take the bait. He didn't choose the pink lemonade. He didn't do that. He waited for the Lexus. He grounded himself in the past. He knew who God was. He knew where he came from. He knew how trustworthy the Father was. And he rooted himself in the future, beyond the grave, what would come. And that provided for him in that moment faith and endurance in a moment of great temptation. Guys, we see Abram doing the same thing here. Abraham stayed. Guys, he stayed in the place that seemed lesser at the time, but nonetheless, it would prove to be the better place. 
Abraham stayed in what did God say? He says what to Abram? He says the exact same phrase, but Abram's not doing it. He's following God's lead. What does he say? He says, Abram, lift up your eyes. You say, look to the valley? No. Just consider like everything. The north, the south, the east, and the west. This is the land I'm gonna give to you. Walk it. Go on a walk. And what does he do? He builds an altar. He says, this place is God's, and God says to him what? Lift up your eyes, walk the land. Walk it. Guys, Abram, like Jesus, he grounds himself in the past of what God has said, and he grounds himself in the future of what will be, and it changes dramatically how he lives in his present. And then there's us. Unlike Jesus and, and Abram, then there's us. The Lexus seems too far off. The pink lemonade gum sounds really good. And we too are tempted like Jesus, tempted like Lot. And yet our present speaks so loudly to us that it's so hard to remember the past and to hope in the future because we are frustrated with the now so often. You come to Jesus in your life and and you've heard Jesus say to you, if you come to me, you will find life and life abundant. And then you wait a few months and you're like, Uh, Where is the abundant life? You come to Jesus and he promises you joy. And you're like, this doesn't feel that joyful. Or you hear Jesus promising you community. You're like, where are all these relationships at? Or you hear him promise you a purpose and yet you stand in this room this morning feeling like you have no purpose. I mean, I I could honestly go on and on because quite honestly, I've thought all these same thoughts at one point or another, and probably many points or another in my life. But the crux of the matter is that God hasn't been holding out on you, and he hasn't been holding out on me. It's just that often when we hear those words of promise, we attach to those promises our original vision of how and when that's going to be fulfilled. When I hear joy and abundant life, I have a vision of that, and it usually means no material suffering, no conflict in relationships. And then when I begin to experience those things, I go, where's this at? I I was hoping for this thing. Or maybe God's just asking us to wait, to wait and what we will experience will be much greater in its fullness than what I'm looking at currently. It's better than what you're tempted to sell out for now, Jesus is saying. Whatever you're tempted to sell out for now, it's better. But guys, we like Abraham and like Jesus, we have the ability this morning because of the grace of God and the spirit of God in us to live by faith in our present, but this only happens when we ground ourselves in the past and what God has done for us and we ground ourselves in the future of what will be. And so what is it that God has grounded us with in the past? What can we look to this morning that would cultivate faith in my present moment Well, guys, we would look to no other place than the place of the cross. We would look to this communion table that we come to week in and week out, and we remember that Jesus broke his body and shed his blood so that I could have God, so I could have a future and a secured inheritance, that I could come and I could try to comprehend what the the love of God is for me in Christ Jesus. 
But then we know that because of the cross, we know the future is secured, that we aren't promised land like Abraham today, because even Abraham's land, guys, it wasn't pointing to that land. It was actually pointing to an ultimate land that the Bible speaks of in Revelation. It's speaking of a land that we will enter one day because of the cross, because of the empty tomb of Jesus. We will enter into this new land, this new heaven, this new earth, and we will walk in that place, and we will walk with God forever. Talk about delayed gratification. Because you know that you're driven by faith and not fear when your eyes are focused on the promises of the future and not simply the appeal of the present. And so like Abram, in the meantime, God says to you and me this morning, he says, lift up your eyes. That's what he's saying to you, lift up your eyes and walk. Jesus holds out to you better promises. He says to you, lift up your eyes and walk the land. But he he isn't just lifting your eyes towards land, he's lifting your eyes towards greater things. I'm gonna put this on the screen. Um, Paul seems to really be grounded in this story when he writes the book of Ephesians. This is what it says in Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, meaning I pray, from whom every family, which is the whole theme of Genesis here, in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's a faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So instead of God saying to Abram, look as far as east is from the west and all these places for land, We're called into this reality that says, just look as high and deep and wide as you possibly can. Try to understand how much God loves you. And then just two verses later, it says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to do what? A walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. As you've been called into life with Jesus, who is the object of our faith, He's the means of our faith. He's the author of our faith, and he's the finisher of our faith. If he's the author of our faith, then looking back at what he did breathes life into my present. If he's the sustainer of my faith, then when I fail, my faith isn't lost. It's an opportunity for growth. If he's the finisher of my faith, then I know that my future is secure even though my present feels like pain. See, this is why I've said our passage today shows us that faith is active in your present when you are grounded in your past and in the promises of your future. But when we ground ourselves in the past and the future, guys, we don't ground ourselves in mere words. We don't ground ourselves in mere stories. We don't ground ourselves in mere circumstances. We ground ourselves in the person of Jesus, the object, the author, the sustainer, and the finisher of our faith. So this morning, guys, I ask you one more time, are you driven by faith or by fear? By what your eyes see? Or do you hear God this morning saying, lift your eyes? Lift your eyes. God, I pray this morning that we would see all that we have in you, Lord Jesus. I know that there are days where it might just feel to many of us like religious jargon or something, God, but we know, we've tasted, we've seen, it's so true. God, you're so worthy. Lord Jesus, you are the most precious uh, person, the most precious object of our lives. 
God, this morning as we respond to you, Lord, I pray that you would just awaken within us the understanding um, of what you've done for us in the past on the cross. And that that would just redirect our eyes, maybe away from our present pain, towards the future that we know is secure because you are the object, Jesus. You're the sustainer. You're the finisher.